0: When someone you love dies, there may be moments where it feels like your grief could consume you, that the ache of missing them will overwhelm you forever. And when that happens, where do you turn? When her parents died, Margaret Wrinkle turned to writing and to nature, specifically the nature of her backyard in Nashville. And in witnessing and recording the daily circle of life and death that her small piece of land offered, Margaret wrote herself through grief. Welcome to The Reckon Interview, I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we're talking with Margaret Wrinkle about her stunning new book, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. Margaret grew up in Alabama, and her book alternates between observations of the natural world and stories about her life in the South. On this episode, we talk about her career writing for the New York Times, the importance of strong women in her family, the resurgence of the local bookstore, and how she has learned to live with loss. So go sit out on your back porch and settle in for this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Margaret Rinkle, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You've just written and published a beautiful book, Late Migrations, and very early on in the book you introduced this idea that a cycle of life is also a cycle of death discuss birds and bugs dying in your yard. Later, your son questions his mortality, as well as observing the death of birds and the death of dogs and the death of all things. I understand that part of the genesis of this writing project for you was was grieving over the death of, of your mother and your parents and your in-laws. Was that close examination of everyday grief in nature in your backyard, was that something that was already part of your mindset and part of what you were looking at in the world? Or was that brought on by by the death of your parents and your in-laws?
1: I started writing the essays shortly after my mother died, which was also the same time when my mother-in-law entered hospice care. I really wasn't in any way thinking of writing a book. I was trying to write through my grief, just as a spiritual practice or as a meditative technique. And I found that I took a lot of comfort from watching the natural cycles in my yard. I didn't actually start writing the nature essays until a few months later when the primary season for the 2018 election Mm -hmm. really started gearing up. And all this ugliness was coming out, particularly in the South. And it should not have, but it caught me off guard. And I thought it was temporary. I thought that the animosity would fade into the background once the polarization of the national political scene kind of receded the way it would normally do after an election. I needed not to spend so much time watching every in and out of the political race. So I started a blog and I gave myself a writing assignment. Once a week, I was going to write a little essay about the natural world. I, I thought if I tuned into the eternal cycle of the natural world, I would feel less despair about the temporary nature of my culture. And what happened is, of course, the animosity did not fade after the election and the rancor did not recede. And somewhere in that process, I realized that I was, that really both sets of essays were concerned with grief in a way, and that they weren't unrelated at all. It was a, a very gradual, almost evolution of my thinking.
0: And the book has been called by many a memoir and, you know, it has elements of that, but it's really kind of a series of intertwined essays, like you were talking about, about your personal life and, and your history, as well as, as the natural world. But it, it does kind of speak to, I guess, how broader memory and grief works. You know, you, you witness something in your yard that reminds you of something in your own life that then reminds you of something in your uh, story that your grandmother had told you. And so, it, you know, it's this kind of fascinating progression as you're reading through it.
1: But that did come later. And once I first started thinking of it as a possible book, I realized that a lot of what I was writing wasn't going to fit in there and that there were holes that needed to be filled somehow. And I didn't really think of it as a memoir. People do call it that and people do refer to the little separate sections as chapters. Mm -hmm. I thought of it as a collection of linked essays for me, a memoir, a true memoir, would try to tell the whole story or the, the full range of mm-hmm. human experience, mm-hmm. of, of an individual person's experience. And for me, I was focused on cycles of life and death, and I kept only the essays that had something to do with that.
0: If you tell anyone's full story in the book, it would be closer to the full story of your mother. I mean, the book opens with your grandmother's remembrance of your mother being born, and in the waning essays of the book... You are burying your mother's ashes. What was her influence like in your life uh, early on growing up in Alabama? I mean, w- why is she kind of the through line of this, of this story?
1: I was not closer to my mother than I was to my father, but my father, when my father died, he died after two and a half years of cancer. Mm-hmm. And after he died, I had my mom to take care of. She was completely undone. So it was a little different to lose my mom very suddenly and then not to have another surviving parent to mm-hmm. sort of focus my energy on it's not just that my mom's gone it's like the whole rhythm of my day was yeah. blown apart so i think because it was the because she was the last surviving parent because she died so suddenly because my in-laws moved to nashville almost immediately after my mother's death and then began to die it was just a real period of mortality. I lost two friends in five months of each other, Wow! both to very sudden cardiac events all during that time. And there was just a period there where it seemed like all I did was encounter death and try to reckon with it somehow. So I think maybe that's how the book got started. But when the more I wrote those essays about mom and then, of course, about dad, the more I realized that for somebody to understand why I would be grieving their loss. So I think one reviewer thought it was really quite out of proportion. Right. That losing a parent should not be that devastating. That's the natural order of things. And that was exactly the thing that I kept trying to figure out. If this is the natural order of things, why is it so hard? Well, it's because the natural order order is hard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and you convey this idea that, you know, the end of caretaking is not relief, that the end of caretaking is grief. And so, you know, you're going through this prolonged period of caretaking. for I your just parents. kept
1: waiting to get my life back. Yeah. And I wasn't getting my life back. And then it, it was just sort of dawning on me that for much of my life, life had been a series of accruals that I was, as a child, I was acquiring more competence and bigger horizons. And then I was marrying and then I was having children. And then the children were moving through stages of greater competence and larger horizons. And then somehow without my noticing it, my life had begun to diminish. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what everybody's does, you know.
0: And also in in the book, you kind of have these you know, brief glimpses, I guess, at, at what it means in some ways to be a woman in Alabama and to be a woman in the South when you were very young, you had a shotgun or a rifle pointed at you uh, and, a, and a woman accused you of trying to steal steal her men in, in one of the uh, funnier but also sadder and more poignant moments. But then your grandmother was shot, and those are obviously two very violent examples from the past. But then there's also this part where you talk about going to your mother and learning that, you know, in Alabama she was forced to give up her career as soon as she became a mother.
1: I think I really came from a true matriarchy. My great-grandmother had three sisters. All but one lived well into their 90s wow. in a part of the country again at a time where there were no vaccines, there were no antibiotics. My great-grandmother was died the, the year I was a junior in college, so I knew her right up through my own early adulthood. My grandmother lived until I was in my 40s. And my grandfather had a series of heart attacks before I was born and was largely an invalid by the time I knew him. So the women were the center of my extended family. And because my mother suffered so from depression and was hospitalized at times, I spent a whole lot of time with my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And so I just I, I just naturally thought of them as the center of I don't want to say power, because my parents had a, an unusually egalitarian marriage. But looking back at my, my childhood, definitely my grandmother was the boss of that household. Yeah. She, but she, you know, it's funny, in the, the these laws that forbade women from working, they were a holdover from the Depression, I believe. When there weren't enough jobs to go around, that was one way to make sure. The assumption was that there would be one breadwinner in the family, and that would be the man. When my my grandmother was a teacher, a school teacher in a little two room schoolhouse in Clopton, Alabama. But the law said that she could not teach as long as she had children under the age of school age. Wow. Even though she lived in the house with my great grandparents and there was a parent in the home. Right. It just wasn't the parent of the child. <laughs> it was just
0: there was a caretaker available.
1: Right. Yeah. And so she put my poor uncle in first grade when he was four years old because they needed the income. And I have to say, it wasn't that it was universally forbidden women to work. It was just you couldn't work for the state of Alabama. Oh, I see. Okay. So my grandmother was a schoolteacher. My mother had worked for the county extension service, so she was an employee of the state.
0: Okay. So the state would not let women work That's if right. they had children at home. Right. That that moment where the gun was pointed at you, 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 you said something to the effect of, knowing in that moment that you wouldn't feel safe. Do you still feel that way today? You- I
1: think of that, that essay as a, a real turning point in the book. When my mother was ill, and she wasn't always ill, but when she was depressed, my brother and I just essentially lived with our grandparents. Mm-hmm. So I thought of that little farming community as the center of safety in my life because that house that... I was in was the house my grandfather had grown up in. It was a house my great grandmother was living there too. It was the this warm embrace of the whole extended family. And when that woman pointed the shotgun, I was far too young to think of myself as a threat to anyone's moonfolk. And so I wasn't in any way alarmed. It seemed it was completely out of the realm of possibility to me that she might shoot me. It was only later that it really sort of dawned on me that there isn't any such thing as safety. It could come out of nowhere at any time and anywhere.
0: Your brother also did the illustrations for the book, these gorgeous drawings. Was he also working through the same type of grief that you were working through? Is that something that you two communicated to each other in the process of writing and drawing this book?
1: We were all grieving. My brother and sister and I There's such a difference between a sudden death and a death after a long illness. When our father died, there was a part of us that was grateful that his suffering was over. Mm -hmm. But when someone is sitting in bed and eating a cookie and watching a rerun of JAG, and then just a few hours later is gone, it's, it's really hard to comprehend that. And so we were all struggling. Um, I wasn't thinking of this as a book. But when I did begin to think of it, I, of course, wanted Billy to be involved. Billy is only a year younger than I am. Mm-hmm. Billy Wrinkle, the collage artist, and he is his aesthetic is very similar to mine anyway. His work often features flowers and birds and grasses and stars. It very often begins in a reading of some classic text. He did a whole series of wonderful artworks based on Henry David Thoreau's journals. So my initial idea was that I would pair these essays with a piece of his existing art. And I I, I kind of conceived of it as a much less text and much more art and almost on the scale of a coffee table book. That was my first envisioning of it. So that turns out to be a very impractical way to make a book. Okay. Because the artworks were, they were not, you know, the same sizes they weren't even the same orientation. So some were vertical, some were horizontal. But also to be able to do justice to art that is that detailed, it needs a glossy, thick, coated paper. And that automatically prices the book
0: yeah, yeah, into yeah. a whole different sure
1: category, which works if you're a famous writer or a famous artist, but maybe not so much for <laughs> Billy and Margaret Wrinkle. So... Um, the, then we sort when I once I had a publisher for the book and we were, the, my editor Joey McGarvey, who's a who's really just a brilliant editor. It was her idea to create a narrative, to put the family essays in chronological order, see where there were gaps where new essays needed to go, mm-hmm. and then just find the nature essays that picked up those themes or picked up images um, or threads. So once. I was thinking of the book in that way. I actually doubled the the length of the book. Wow. And at that point, we were thinking that Billy would do the cover. Okay. And I don't know how this came up. It must have come up in a conversation with the art director, a Mary Austin speaker, who's just an amazing visual artist. And she came to me and they said, do you think your brother would be willing to make an original set of artworks for this book? And they would have to be simpler mm-hmm. because of the... They would all be the same size. And right. He was thrilled to do it. We, you know, As I was saying, we were only a year apart, and we often collaborated on little presents for our parents or our friends. Mm-hmm. And um, they took the manuscript. They poured it into their template. They knew that the artworks needed to be on the left-hand side and the title of the next essay needed to be on the right-hand side. And so they just told him where that happened, and he picked which ones he wanted to work with from there.
0: You grew up in Alabama during a very tumultuous time, and you moved to Birmingham in the 1960s. You were three when the marches in Selma happened. You know, you don't go too deeply into the civil rights movement in your book, but you have this really poignant essay where you talk about accidentally uh, (laughs) marching in the 20th anniversary march of the Selma to Montgomery marches Mm -hmm. and joining the marches but not knowing the songs and not being able to sing along.
1: I was very largely oblivious to it. I mean, I was born late in 1961. In the part of the country that I lived in, in Lower Alabama, there might as well not have been a civil rights movement. There was nothing that happened in Clopton, Alabama, nothing that happened in Andalusia, Alabama. It was all happening in Birmingham or Montgomery or Selma. But you can't write about growing up in... Alabama in the 60s and 70s without reckoning with that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I was, at some point, someone must have explained to me that no black people were allowed to live in the neighborhood that I lived in. Even though there were black people all over that neighborhood, they were cutting grass, they were cleaning house. My grandmother always had someone helping her with my grandfather. So I was aware that there was a great unjust disparity of power. But I was not unaware aware that there was anything being done about it. Right. And in Birmingham, you know, I went to Catholic school. Catholic schools were integrated in the 50s. Mm. So there was I just wasn't as aware of it as I should have been. So I went,
0: your school was integrated.
1: I don't believe my school had any black children in it, but there was nothing forbidding it to happen. Right. And right. they were right. part of in the the high school was certainly integrated and the Sports leagues were fully integrated, so that was, I guess, unusual. But it, it was all I knew, so it didn't seem unusual to me. Mm-hmm. So some of those essays that talk about my my grandmother's housekeeper or talk about the march from Selma to Montgomery, those are me looking back and acknowledging my ignorance and trying to make sense of the fact that this thing, this world, that seemed so idyllic to me, was very far from idyllic.
0: Right. And then you went to Auburn University. Mm-hmm. And then after graduating, you moved up north to Philadelphia.
1: Disastrously so. <laughs> yeah.
0: In your words, you, talk, you You mentioned that you thought you had escaped, quote unquote, the South for good. That obviously <laughs> did not turn out to be the case. So what changed for you when you got to Philly?
1: I had left Auburn kind of in a fury. The magazine I edited came into conflict with the publication board Mm. There was some attempts at censorship. There were some. There was a lot of. <laughs> there was a lot of sturm und drang. A lot of grandstanding on both sides. I include myself in that. But anyway, <laughs> I thought this is the most uh, closed-minded, willfully ignorant place, and I'm getting out here. Only it turns out. <laughs> The closed-minded, willfully ignorant place was my closed-minded, willfully ignorant place, and it was where I belonged. I just was, it was partly that it was so far from home, and I'm really a terrible homebody. And it's also partly that it was a city. So even in college, the dorms weren't air-conditioned at Auburn in 1980. And the apartment I lived in wasn't air conditioned. You slept with the windows open. You woke to birdsong. You know, it was the natural world was integrated into your life. Not so in Philadelphia. Certainly not. There are lovely places in Philadelphia where you could afford to live on a graduate student stipend, stipend was not among those places. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was like, the only birds are pigeons or sparrows. You know, yeah. they it just wasn't, I just was homesick. That's all it was. All it came down to was realizing that loving someone or some place is accepting that you aren't going to love all of it.
0: Well, and you've toyed with this idea. You also write a, a weekly column for the New York Times and have become a voice uh, for the South in the New York Times, which doesn't well, always get I will get say to... that
1: I am not making an attempt to be a voice <laughs> for the South. I am only making an attempt to be my voice in in a place,
0: right? A voice from the South, I guess. I am a voice from the South in a publication that doesn't always uh, capture the nuances of the South uh, perfectly, and occasionally gets dragged on Twitter for that reason. But in a May essay, you talk about the sort of shame and salvation of the South, and it sounds like that's kind of the idea that you're exploring in the conversation just now about you know deciding that this is your place. <laughs> So what does the South mean to you? You know, having grown up in Alabama, now living in Nashville, what does it mean to be a Southerner in, who was born in 1961 and now 2019?
1: I think within the context of writing for the New York Times, my, my sort of self-determined mission is to complicate prejudices about the South because I don't think there is a South mm-hmm. anymore. Perhaps there never was. There's certainly even in my childhood to say that you could speak for the South as a white woman would have been calamitous because you would be speaking from your particular race and and your particular socioeconomic class. But the South is so much more complicated even now, more than just by race and more than just by class and more than just by gender, because we have so many immigrants in the South Right, And there really is a rural South and an urban South. And there's a difference between the South that is Nashville and the South that is Birmingham and the South that is Atlanta and the South that is New Orleans, as opposed to the South that is Hohenwald, Tennessee, or Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or... Even Selma, Alabama.
0: And all those Souths are different from each other, too. And they so, are all very yeah. different
1: from each other. In Tennessee, Tennessee is that long, narrow state yeah. with eight borders. Right. And you could be living in Bristol, Tennessee, and essentially be a West Virginian. You could be living in Memphis, Tennessee, and essentially be a Mississippian or an Arkansan. It, we're all over the place. Right. There are many, many Souths.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Coming up, Margaret discusses taking on the retail giant Amazon in a battle to promote local bookstores. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them?
1: At the day, I would much rather go to the National Championship and lose than go to any other bowl game.
0: The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out.
1: Just cause I'll dig a ditch from eight to five and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me.
0: Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. You've also written recently about how the internet is kind of changing the way we not only purchase and and write about books. In a recent one of your recent columns, you made a case for independent bookstores over Amazon, particularly Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. I believe you were also the founding editor of Chapter 16 in Tennessee, which its mission is kind of to fill the gaps of dwindling press coverage for books and literary events in the state. In some ways, you know, it, it seems like We've kind of peaked in the ebook world, and now that physical books are making a comeback. But what have we lost with the uh, the rise of Amazon and and kind of the decimation of news outlets?
1: Well, I don't actually blame Amazon for the loss of all the bookstores because uh, Barnes and Noble managed to kill a whole bunch of them mm-hmm. before Amazon ever came along. In my in my youth, a bookstore was a place somewhere between seven hundred and twelve hundred square feet. Where the books were just lining the walls, and maybe a few freestanding displays, or a front one front table, and the the person behind the counter who knew where every single title was and could find it for you. They weren't browsing places, except for true bibliophiles. But when these larger bookstore chains came into existence, with coffee shops and train tables, and you know, it became a destination for family or to meet somebody if you were single. I mean, that was really hard for those sweet little dusty bookstores to compete with. And many of them did not survive. A great many of them did not survive. And that was a huge loss for the literary ecosystem. Because one of the reasons newspapers stopped covering books is that bookstores stopped advertising in newspapers. It was a mutually beneficial arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, But Amazon today the the business practices that Amazon employs which can be accomplished by scale for example negotiating lower wholesale prices from publishers than a bookstore an independent bookstore can negotiate or pricing books because of scale where they make only a dollar a book whereas a bookstore has to make more like half the the cost of the cover price of the book itself to survive. Partly that scale and partly this because Amazon began as an online retailer. People in bookstores have to hire staff and they have that that they pay benefits to and they have to pay the light bill and they have to pay the rent. And so the advantages that Amazon has over the small independent bookstore are impossible to exaggerate. A lot of people don't understand this, I don't think. It's just business for Amazon. It's not evil. No, of course It's just business. But we as Americans have been trained for so long that you seek the best bargain. And you know if you go and you buy a knockoff pair of boots as opposed to, let's say, an REI brand pair of boots, you know you're going to get what you pay for. But a book looks the same, whether you get it from Amazon or whether you get it from an independent bookstore. And there are people, of course, who have no access to independent bookstores. They're not living anywhere near right. an independent bookstore. And so for them, being able to get a book at all, they consider that to be a great advantage. And the fact that it costs less is even better. At the same time, if you live in a community with a bookstore, you need to buy your books from those from that bookstore because if you don't, the bookstore won't be there anymore. And the day when you need your kid's summer reading title right then, or you need a hostess gift right then, or you need a birthday present right then, or you need somebody who knows you, who knows what you've read, who knows what you like reading, who knows what your kids like reading. Or if you just have the very, just some kind of general idea, ah, I have this nephew, I know he loves this. What else? What's new that he would love? You need your neighborhood bookshop. And the reason I wrote that, that column is that Amazon recently announced that it was going to open an actual bookstore across the street from Parnassus Books, which is my beloved neighborhood bookstore. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's like it's almost as though every time bookstores figure out how to offer something that Amazon doesn't offer you know, a a bricks and mortar store that you can come to author events or signed copies of first editions or something like that, Amazon tries to do that cheaper. And at some point we have to say, if you want choice, if you want options, if you don't want every single thing you buy to come from one vendor, then you have to put your money where your mouth is. And
0: Parnassus, I mean, it came about in part because Ann Patchett, and others looked around and saw that Nashville hadn't had an independent bookstore in, in quite some time. Well,
1: it so, hadn't been that long. It, it was a it, We had a number of wonderful used bookstores, and, and a Books-A-Million. It's not that we had no bookstores. It's that we didn't have the kind of bookstore that an independent bookstore tries to be. We didn't have author events. We didn't have children's story time. I mean, none of those. You, there was a place where you could go and you could buy the whatever was on the New York Times bestseller list that week and maybe a hunting magazine and maybe I don't know
0: sure you know yeah yeah <laughs>
1: cosmo but but it wasn't like the kind that you think of where you would go and get something something for everybody we had had that and it closed it was um, a, an independent bookstore in Nashville that ended up being folded into a small regional chain and the chain itself declared bank- bankruptcy, but the store in Nashville had been profitable. Hmm. So when Ann Patchett, the novelist, she was about to have a book of her own coming out, and everybody was talking about this. Everybody was worried about this. And a friend of hers introduced her to Karen Hayes, who was a Random House representative who had a lifelong dream of opening a bookstore. It was not Anne Patchett's lifelong dream to open a bookstore. Right. <laughs> but um, she was willing to provide the seed money so that Karen could put in to practice all the expertise about running a bookstore that she had acquired by visiting so many bookstores as a representative of Random House. And it was really a marriage made in heaven in many ways. And Anne became, I think, much more involved in the bookstore itself than she ever anticipated being. Um, She's often at the store giving introductions to visiting authors.
0: Yeah, sure. You're not a naturalist by training, not a biologist or, any, or anything like that. And you also discuss that um, you have very poor vision. And yet you have these very beautiful, poignant revelations about nature, mostly through the lens of your backyard. And it's not necessarily a book about the changing nature of the South and climate change. And yet, through whether it's late migrations of monarch butterflies or or different species of birds in your backyard that aren't typically there you know you're kind of seeing this microcosmic view of how the nature of the south is changing you also express the idea that you know we didn't see the beginning of nature and we probably won't be around to see the end and I so i hope we're not <laughs> really around to see the end <laughs> and the idea that you can't always affect natural events through unnatural means
1: I think I focus on the on backyard nature as opposed to the wilderness because I don't really have access to the wilderness. But part of it, the more I think about it, the more I think that possibly environmentalists, we environmentalists, I include myself, people who are concerned about the environment, have made a mistake in focusing on the marquee animals like the polar bear or the tiger or the white rhino. Because There will always be a pretty substantial subset of humanity who just doesn't care. Who doesn't care if we never have another polar bear again, if we never have another olive ridley sea turtle again. They just don't care. But if they think, if they can understand how interconnected their own little bitty postage stamp of native soil is all the creatures and all the plants and how interconnected they are, that if you don't. If you plant only shrubs, if you plant no flowers, mm-hmm. then you won't have bees and you won't have butterflies. If we can't save the bees and the butterflies, we will not have any American agriculture. You know, a, 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 a huge percentage of land use in this country is lawn. And so people who have a little bit of lawn can make a huge difference. It's Is it going to change? Is it going to reverse the course of climate change? No. But in paying attention, I believe, you can see it. You can see it with your own eyes. Whatever Fox News might be telling you, the lovely thing about nature is that it does not respond to spin. It, you know, <laughs> right. if, if the birds aren't there that used to be there and you're paying attention, you might wonder, why aren't they here? You know, the people who spray for mosquitoes in their yard, they're not thinking if I kill all the mosquitoes, there won't be anything for the swifts and the swallows and the bats to eat. They aren't thinking that. But if you start thinking that, it's you don't have to look very far to see how closely connected it all is and how much of it we can shape. You know, Obviously, what we have to do is elect leaders who believe in climate change and are committed to making changes. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous that anybody would fuss at the Brazilians for letting their rainforest burn down when you know Alabama didn't used to be a land of piney woods. Right. There used to be hardwoods here and we cut them all down. So part of it is just being invested.
0: I read a book earlier this year that uh, the Gulf and I think it was by Jack Davis. You know, he kind of looks at the the several hundred year history of the Gulf Coast and There were things that I had just never really considered, like people who use fertilizers on their soil in the Midwest, you know, that their lawn fertilizer is making its way down through the Mississippi and into the Gulf. And that is radically changing the Gulf Coast itself. And so you're right that there are obviously macro policy decisions that can only be handled by policymakers. But there are also individual backyard decisions that do affect the natural world. Uh, Your neighbor. Uh, expressed disbelief at one point that you were planting clover <laughs> in order to, to bring back bees. Um, and so...
1: It's, you know, it, the, the funny thing is that Americans, there's a, the, um, the Garden Club of America has an initiative called the Healthy Yard Project. I mean, think about this for a minute. The Garden Club of America. <laughs> these are not radical environmentalist right. tree huggers yeah. you know these are people <laughs> who, who who grow daylilies, but they have uh, there's a a, a a huge initiative in the Garden Club of America to remove invasive plant species from suburban landscapes and, and particularly from public lands like parks. And also to try to convince people to just give up on the grass. You know, you don't even have to willfully remove the grass. Just stop spraying it, and the other stuff will kill it because grass is not meant to be grown under trees in Alabama. Right. You know, (laughs) grass grows in the Midwest. But um, so much could be accomplished if people would just let the 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 natural world. It wants to recover. The other thing I would say is that when people start noticing, they can't stop noticing. And that's one of the things that I hope reading Late Migrations or reading my column and times might sometimes do is persuade people to just take the earbuds out and listen to the birds and see because then you'll notice when they're gone.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talk about watching a caterpillar in your backyard and, you know, I think about myself. Sitting in my backyard, and you know, we have ducks and geese and things like that in a pond in our backyard. But I typically look at the bugs as, as pests. And you know, I walked into this to this room as we were having this interview, and I and I saw a dead wasp on the floor. And I <laughs> and I don't know that I would necessarily have noticed or even thought about that wasp until reading. This book. And so, you know, the, the, those sort of noticing um, the small everyday occurrences of life, you know, it, it's meditative in a lot of ways. The, the, the book itself is meditative, but it's also restorative, I think, for, for the planet and, and, and for the soul.
1: We are living in a way that we are not really designed to live. I mean, there's ample evidence, medical evidence, for example, that people whose hospital rooms face a tree recover more quickly and with fewer complications than somebody in the exact same physical state with the exact same let's say surgery in a hospital room without a tree in view outside the window turning soil releases some kind of microbes into the air that are that really are increase well-being and there're so many of these things that we are only beginning to understand the idea of urban trees, for example, they don't just cool the sidewalks and lower energy costs. They also make us feel better. I think that we are meant to be closer to nature than we are. And it wasn't that we decided to reject it. It's that we just stopped paying attention. And I think it was probably here in the South very largely related to the advent of air conditioning, because when, you, when your windows are open to the world, you're much less able to tune it out. Mm. You know if the wind is blowing. You know if the birds are singing. You know if it's about to rain, you can smell it. And we don't have that anymore. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to live here without air conditioning, but I remember living here without air conditioning. Yeah,
0: particularly not on a day like today <laughs> no. where it's 100 degrees outside. <laughs> right. You come to a conclusion at the end of your book that you know grief isn't something that you really walk away from, that there's always going to be kind of who you were before your parents died and then who you are grieving the the death of your parents and that those two beings are Margaret. Now that the book has been published, you have at least written your way through part of the grieving process. Um, I wonder if, do you still feel it as sharply as you did when your when your parents first passed?
1: No, I don't think anybody does. But I mean, there isn't a day that passes that I don't wish I could call them up. My father was embarrassingly proud of his children. He was obnoxiously proud of us. And he would be out of his mind right now <laughs> <laughs> that this book is out and he's in it and people are reviewing it and reading it and inviting me to come and talk to them all over the country. And he would just be so proud. And it's hard not to wish I could say, hey, daddy, yeah, go get online and read this. But at the same time, I mean, I don't think anything lasts really it, it just in the exact same level of intensity i mean if if you were if you stayed in love now i've been married 31 years i i'm in love but not like i was 31 <laughs> years ago you know what i mean it's just uh that level of intensity it, it it has to burn itself out a little bit or you can't just go to the grocery store you know you can you have to right. be able to move on with your daily life and that's what i was trying to say in that essay is that you're the new you that's been changed, but you're also, you've recovered to some degree the the you you were before when you couldn't think of, when you could think of other things. But I, I think the older I get, it's not just my parents. You know, when I was writing the acknowledgments for this book, I put off and put off and put off writing it. I mean, when you get to be 57 years old and you write your first book, there's a whole lot of people you've accumulated who need thanking. And normally that litany of thanks begins with the mentors for a first book but almost all of my mentors are gone now yeah and i don't know but they don't feel gone so i do feel sometimes that i live in a world of ghosts they're with me as they ever have been
0: well thank you so much for coming by
1: thanks for having me Don.
0: and that's about it y'all Thank you again to Margaret Wrinkle. If you're in the Birmingham area, she'll be doing a reading and signing of her new book at Alabama Booksmith on October 1st at 5 p.m. I also want to take a quick moment to thank friend of the show, Carla Jean Whitley, for suggesting Margaret Wrinkle as a guest and for loaning me her copy of Late Migrations. If you've got an idea for a guest, find me on Twitter at at John Hammontree. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly. Our theme song, Reconstructed, is produced by Subtop Records. It was written and performed by Lee Baines III and The Glory Fires. If you like the show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Go to al.com slash reckon to sign up for our newsletter and to stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. And thanks, as always, for reckoning with us.